Well, if you want to join me, we're going to be in John chapter 3, wrapping up the third chapter of John this morning. Uh, We just have devoted three Sundays to Jesus' nighttime conversation with Nicodemus, in which Jesus explains who he is and what he is all about. Jesus' message to Nicodemus was neatly summarized in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus, motivated by love and in response to our need for a Savior, came into the world like a fighter stepping into the ring to square off against sin and death, our great enemies, on our behalf. And that took him to the cross, where Jesus dealt the knockout blow to the great enemy. And now, in the last 15 verses of chapter 3, we come back to a figure that is already familiar to us from our study of chapter 1, John the Baptist. The great dominant storyline of Jesus the Savior is here going to be rejoined to that lesser storyline of that lesser figure, John the Baptist. In verse 22, which begins this section of Scripture, begins with the words, After this, which implies that what we are about to read happened chronologically next, after Jesus' talk with Nicodemus. However, these verses were not just highlighted because they are what happened next, but because they are linked in their meaning and import to what Jesus revealed about himself in that conversation with Nicodemus. There's a flow of logic as we transition from the conversation with Nicodemus into the last few verses of chapter 3. And their purpose in the flow of this gospel narrative is to solidify in our minds the lessons of that rich conversation. Uh, But don't go to sleep on me. This is not just review. It is more about going deeper and exploring it into, into a greater depth. So let's read these words, and then we'll pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us into understanding them. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you would, by the Holy Spirit, guide us into your truth and help me to do justice to this rich passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to spend most of our time here this morning on verses 22 through 30. Uh, But as I already said, I think the point of John in this narrative is to uh, anchor, solidify, make more concrete in our minds the lessons of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And most of that is accomplished in the last six or seven verses of this passage, verses 31 through 36. And uh, this is really where the link to Nicodemus' conversation is. This is why verses 31 through 33 closely paraphrase what Jesus said to Nicodemus in verses 11 through 13. And verse 36 is strikingly similar to what Jesus said to Nicodemus in verse 18. If you go back and read those two things together, uh, they're very, very close in terms of the wording. If we go back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he made two very powerfully worded statements. Do you remember in verse 3, he says, anytime Jesus begins a sentence with truly, truly, it's really like you should highlight this in your Bible. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Strongly worded and kind of a, a... kind of maybe even scary from a certain perspective because Jesus is saying cannot enter unless you're born again. Cannot. God of the universe is saying you cannot gain salvation unless you're born again. And so immediately we kind of sit up and take notice. He's talking about that which is most fundamentally important to our hopes. So in verse 3 he says unless you're born again you can't see. And in verse 5, unless you're born again, you can't enter. And what we see is that these closing verses of chapter 3 make the same sort of statements in the same order. Verses 31 through 34 are talking about one's ability to see God's word as truth. This is supernaturally given. This is not natural to the heart of fallen man. In verse 31, it says this, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In verse 32, he says, no one receives his testimony. And then in verse 33, he says, whoever receives his testimony, (laughs) and we're kind of left going, well, which is it? If nobody receives his testimony, who does receive his testimony? But I think what he's saying here is basically a paraphrase of what Jesus said, which is that unless you're born again, you can't see. You you can't receive this testimony unless there is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that opens your eyes to see and perceive. You don't receive naturally. It has to be given to you. And that that person who is given that gift testifies that God is true. 
And the segue between verses 31 through 34 and entering and between seeing in verses 31 through 34 and entering in verses 35 through 36 is this line about the Spirit being given without measure. Remember in this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus said you must be born by the Spirit. The Spirit is what is needed to see. The Spirit is what is needed for the work of being of regeneration, being born again. And so then he goes into verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So here, uh, chapter 3 finishes by this summary and further exploration of what Jesus had said to Nicodemus. That the ability to see and discern truth And salvation comes from being born again. And this is not something that human beings can conjure within themselves. None of us have the willpower or the wisdom to create this. It is something that's given to us. It's by an act of being born again. Now we made the observation last week that Jesus concludes his conversation with Nicodemus by encouraging him toward a place of personal decision about Jesus. Nicodemus was this guy who was trying to live with a foot in two camps. We saw that last week. And Jesus makes it very plain that this is a this or that kind of a scenario. You have to pick a lane. And so he has to decide, is he going to step into the light or is he going to retreat into the darkness? Is he going to play for Team Jesus or is he going to continue living his life in service to the good opinion of his fellow Pharisees? He really has an important decision to make and it's a hard one. And this is something that Jesus did a lot. You might remember that famous exchange between Jesus and his own disciples in Matthew 16, in which he asked, who do the people say that I am? And they answered him. He asked the first question in kind of an abstract way, like we're just having a conversation. And they answered him, some people say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus does what he always does. He moves from the theoretical and the abstract to the very, very, very personal. He says, but who do you say that I am? And that isn't a question, that is the question. This is the great question that hangs over every human being that has ever lived and will ever live. Who is Jesus? What is his significance? And not what does the encyclopedia or Wikipedia say about him. That's a very Im- this is not an impersonal question that Jesus asks. He's pressing them and asking them, what about you personally? Who do you say I am to you? And Jesus presses Nicodemus in a similar way by bringing him to a place of decision. And then we come to these verses, and I think these verses are designed to address, challenge, and confront the way that the hearts of people respond to Jesus. Jesus has already talked about those lovers of darkness who love wickedness and so they remain in darkness and others who step out into the light because they truly are lovers of God. Now when I say that, some of you are tempted to start zoning me out, I'm afraid, because you figure, oh, this isn't going to be about me. (laughs) I already responded to Jesus in a positive way. I'm here in church. I love God. I'm, this is not about me at all. Well, note this. This portion of Scripture begins with John the Baptist's disciples complaining to him 
that everyone is now going to Jesus to be baptized rather than to them. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. They're baptizing people in a place there where water is plentiful. And then in verse 25, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. But whenever Jew is mentioned here, it's not just somebody who's ethnically Jewish. They're referring to somebody of the Jewish religious authority. This is kind of John and his gospel, his shorthand, probably a Pharisee or a scribe, somebody like that. And they get into conversation with him. And whatever happened in this conversation, they are spurred to go find John the Baptist and make this statement to their rabbi, their leader. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, He's baptizing, and all are going to him. He's stealing our shtick. (laughs) He's doing the same stuff we're doing. We started this whole thing, and now everybody's going to him. And the thing to notice about the disciples of John is that although here they seem to be jealous of the people's response to Jesus, they really do belong in a different category than the Pharisees or others who also seem to be jealous of Jesus. The ministry of John the Baptist does not exist in any way in opposition to Jesus and his ministry. In fact, the opposite is true. John the Baptist views and understands his role as existing to support and further the ministry of Jesus. He's not the light, but he points people to the light, and that light is Jesus. And he's made it plain to his disciples that Jesus is not just the main show. He is the show, singular. And their participation in the ministry of John the Baptist has been right and good. It was truly worship to God. However, even though, even though these guys, the disciples of John the Baptist, are already on the side of the angels, as it were, and they were living in genuine service to God, they still apparently look on the waning fortunes of John's ministry and the waxing fortunes of Jesus' ministry with some degree of jealousy. And the real trouble is that they do not truly view John's ministry and Jesus' ministry as one. It's a bit like uh, when my kids were little. One time I coached a soccer team that Lucy was on. I was trying to remember this week how old she was. She might have been like seven, something like that. And we did all the drills. We practiced and all of that. But as soon as the game would start... They were not passing like we had done in practice. Everybody was just chasing the ball like a big amoeba. You know, just whoever has the ball, they're all chasing that person. And it was chaos. And I don't know how many times from the sideline I would say, same team, same team. Because my players would steal the ball from their own teammates. (laughs) They, They just wanted the ball. They wanted to kick it. They wanted to score goals. And they didn't really care so much about all the ball hogs, sure, The ball hogs, even them, wanted their team to win. But more importantly, they wanted their team to win because they had played brilliantly and scored all the goals. This was the truth of it. If you'd asked them, do you want our team to win? Yes. Do you want our team to win even if you sit on the sideline? No. (laughs) That wasn't what they wanted at all, those little kids. And the spirit that we see in John's disciples is not so different, I think, from when a believer becomes jealous of another Christian's gifts or calling or their following or the sense that their impact in ministry is being more celebrated 
Or perhaps when another church or denomination or ministry is gaining a bigger following than the one you belong to and are invested in. And a a troubling question for me personally is, am I really concerned with winning people to Jesus or to my church? If I knew that the person I'm pursuing and praying for and witnessing to would join another church, would I still be just as zealous to win them? I hope so. But it does raise a troubling question. I think, if I'm just going to be very honest, the spirit of John the Baptist's disciples is alive and well in the church today, maybe even in me. We long to see God move in a powerful way in Aroostook County, now in 2020. But what if he moves with power not here at State Road, but in another church down the road? What if people throng to the teaching and vision of another pastor, but not me? Will I still celebrate what I'm seeing God doing, even if I'm sidelined? Even when it's happening somewhere else? Even when God is using other people, another church, another denomination to accomplish it? Do I still celebrate Jesus when that's happening? Well, look now at John the Baptist, how he answers them. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John starts off by telling them that their ministry and the ministry of Jesus receives what heaven gives, not what they earn or create. In other words, walk in the grace you've been given. To the degree that God has gifted you or called you or given you a place of ministry, take joy in that and follow him in it, whatever it is. But he pours out grace according to his own wisdom. He pours out favor wherever he will. And then he calls upon them to remember what he has tried to teach them about himself in relation to the greatest gift heaven gives to Christ. John John knows he's not God's gift to humanity. Jesus is. And for John, God's gift to him is being able to be a part of what Jesus is doing. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And then he makes this statement. John says that the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And he compares himself to a friend of the groom who delights in the love that the bride and groom have for one another and for being a part of this exciting coming together. Just so glad to be at the ceremony, to be a part of it. He feels honored. And at first, we may think this is kind of an obvious and unnecessary thing to say, that the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. But I think that this is actually a really provocative thing to say to these jealous men. Because what they have revealed is that they have a secret crush on the bride. They want the bride. John is saying so in so many words. He says, the bride is not for you. You can't have her. 
they tell John the Baptist they're all going over to Jesus. And what they really mean is that they want her attention. They want her love and affection and admiration. They want her to smile on them. And this is why John the Baptist says he must decrease. She belongs to Jesus. I can't compete for her heart with him. Not only can I not in a practical way, but I should not. To the extent that that's present in you, that's a bad thing. You've got a secret crush on the bride. And anybody who loves recognition in ministry more than the work of Jesus happening in people's lives is somebody who has a secret crush on the bride. If I'm ever more concerned that I professionally as a pastor have success, numerical success, success in the opinions of people, and I, I celebrate that more than when a church down the road blows up And a work of God is happening, exciting things are happening for the kingdom and in the spirit. If I'm unable to celebrate that happening because I'm not the one who it's happening through, that reveals that I have a crush on Jesus' bride. It's messed up. Show Show of hands, how many of you have ever heard the name Steve Besner? Nobody's ever heard the name Steve Besner. I'm willing to bet you've heard the name of his college roommate, Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler and Steve Besner were two students in seminary eating ramen in their dorm room, (laughs) studying in the same classes, both excited about a future career in pastoral ministry, Matt Chandler went on to become one of the biggest things in the American church. Following of thousands, book deals, traveling all over speaking, Steve Besner has been buried in obscurity pastoring in a rural church in Texas. Back in 2015, he wrote the following in a very honest and vulnerable piece about the jealousy he has felt over the years toward Matt Chandler's success in ministry. I can't read what he wrote in its entirety, it's too long, uh, but I commend it to you. What he, the title of his essay is On Being Matt Chandler's Roommate by Steve Besner. It's a very good article. But I did want to read just a little bit, though. He writes this. There are three smallish Christian universities in Abilene. During our student years, a weekly college Bible study met where students from all over the city would gather on Thursday nights for prayer worship, and a time of teaching. The study was growing, and there was a word that the pastor, Steve Harden, was looking to hand off leadership. I hoped they would choose me. I was, after all, a great student and a decent communicator. Instead, they chose Matt, and that's when the jealousy began. The weekly Bible study swelled in attendance to approximately 2,000 students, and this in Abilene. Matt was receiving invitations to speak all over West Texas. He was becoming the local spiritual authority, and he was in his early 20s. I was amazed at God's blessing on Matt's life, and I badly wanted it for myself. I don't know if you've ever been jealous of someone you were simultaneously friends with. It's a difficult spiritual condition to describe. 
On the one hand, I was happy for my friend. He was experiencing the sort of ministry success that is impossible to orchestrate. God was clearly ordaining a path for him. On the other hand, I felt slighted. I felt I'd worked harder. I felt I'd paid my dues. Why was he getting to live the life I wanted to live? And to add insult to injury, I was now known around campus in town by a new label, Matt Chandler's roommate. (laughs) You can read the rest of it if you go find his uh, bit. But I, I love the raw, vulnerable honesty of what he wrote. How tough is it to say out loud, I'm jealous of Matt Chandler? But he has the honesty to look that square in the face and say, essentially, I've had a crush on the bride, and it's gross. He had a hard time celebrating what Jesus was doing through Matt Chandler, even though it was a work of God. He continues, in case you don't already know Matt's story, his meteoric rise in ministry only continued. His speaking engagements reached higher heights, and then he became pastor of First Baptist Church, Highland Village, Texas. From my limited vantage point, it was as if his church, now named the Village Church, grew from 150 to 1,500 to a billion or so overnight. I say my limited vantage point because I was serving on staff at a church in rural East Texas. I loved it, to be honest. It fit who the Lord had made me to be, but it wasn't a place to be noticed. It wasn't the village and I wasn't a success. Jesus would go on to say that all of, the, of all the men born of women, none were greater than John the Baptist. That's a statement John made, uh, Jesus made about John the Baptist. No matter what the world says, Jesus said that he was a roaring success of a man. And what made John the Baptist so phenomenally successful in the eyes of our Lord was not his following, but what kind of a follower he was. I think men tend to look on success as a great following. Jesus looks on our success as if we're a great follower. And the reason why Jesus said, of all the men born of women, none of them are greater than John the Baptist, that measure of greatness has to do with his humility. That's the measure of what made him so great in Jesus' eyes. His remarkable humility allowed him to celebrate God's activity wherever and through whoever it was happening. And that's a rare quality. And I think one of the reasons why John and his gospel includes this at this point is because this really is, so far he's been talking about how non-believers respond to Jesus and the eternal significance that that has, right? People whose deeds are wickedness hate the light. And some people love the light. And so far, that's what he's been talking about, and that's the most important thing. But when he takes up the issue of John the Baptist, these are guys who are already on the right side. (laughs) And their hearts to response to what Jesus was doing was also perilous. It was also, they were also prone to feeling jealous about what Jesus was up to. And I certainly came away from this passage feeling convicted about some things, feeling like I needed to pray and repent. 
and maybe you do too. But I'm just grateful for this reminder from God's word. Let me close now with a word of prayer and then we'll have the worship team come on up and lead us in one last song. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this word. I thank you for the third chapter of John. God, we have spent a month of Sundays here and uh, God, it has been good to spend time with you here in this chapter. God, thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. And God, if, if there is in me or in any of my friends here this morning, God, a, 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 an inability to celebrate what you're doing because you're not doing it through us. God, I pray, Lord, that you would take that away. God, give us the humility that was so abundant in John the Baptist. Father, humility is not something that's rare or given out stingily. You would love to lavish your people with more humility. And so, Father, we come to you this morning and we ask you for that as a gift. God, give us humility in such measure that we don't care who puts the ball in the back of the net. We just want to see you glorified. We want to see your kingdom expand We want to see lost people brought into the hope of salvation. Father, we want your church everywhere and throughout our corner of the harvest here in Aristic County to represent you well, for you to do big things in your church today. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would drench State Road Advent Christian Church in humility. God, would you give that as a gift? so that we, like John the Baptist, can just be grinning guests at the, at the wedding, just so delighted at the exciting coming together that's happening all around us. Father, we would ask that you give us that as a gift this morning. We love you. We're so grateful to be yours and to have you as our God. In Jesus' name, amen.